Now about eight days after these sayings, he took them and with Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke to his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make, a, make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child, and behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, and so he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, you faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about his saying. An argument rose among them as to which of them was greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is all you all is one who is the greatest. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Colt. Let's pray together. Father, we gather together, uh, not based on any merit of our own, but only because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. We uh, come boldly before you because of his work as our true and faithful high priest. And uh, we gather to listen and hear from you. From your word, we thank you for your word, that it will go forth and accomplish your purposes in our lives, and so we depend on it this morning. So I pray that you would guide us as we look into this text, reveal uh, those things in our lives that need to be corrected, uh, reveal those, those places where we have fixed our eyes on lesser things. And let us behold you in your glory and in your majesty this morning. So I pray that you would be with us and through your spirit move in our midst. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As I was preparing uh, over this text over the last couple weeks and, and just, just wrestling with these stories, uh, 
Uh, the one question that kept coming back to me is, how does Luke want us to understand the relationship between these narratives and these stories? How, how do they fit together? What is, what is the purpose? And, and for a long time, I, I felt like, man, maybe we should like take this transfiguration story and kind of preach it on its own. It's just this, this kind of separate, just significant moment. It's, it's really amazing what happens here, hard to even grasp what is taking place. And then we have kind of these other four little snippets quick little stories of, of Jesus with his disciples. And I, I wrestled for a long time about how to, how to bring these things together. And uh, in, in, my, in my studying and reflection, I came across a, a painting. I'm not, I'm not a big art guy, but I came across this, uh, this painting by Raphael. Not the Ninja Turtle, but the, uh, the great Renaissance uh, painter. And uh, I, I have this, this for you. This is his depiction of the Transfiguration. This is one of his most famous paintings, apparently. It's housed, I think, in the Vatican Museum now. And as I, as I reflected on this image, I thought it was, it was, was fascinating how he, he, he pulled these things together. Uh, as you look at the top of the, the painting, we see the, this, this beautiful moment on the mountain where Jesus is transfigured, is, is changed before his disciples there. He's, he's flanked by these two Old Testament figures on his right and his left. But then, almost in just as big of a size of the painting at the bottom half is this other scene. Initially, you might overlook, but what he has actually done has, has included this story that follows here in Luke's narrative. We see the, the uh, demon-possessed boy there on the bottom right, and the disciples seeking to cast that out. And I just, I just stared and reflected on this image of, of, of the contrast that is displayed here. And I think there's a, there's a sense that I think he's on to something of this is how we are to read and understand what is taking place here, where we see this tension where we see on the mountain, the glory of God is, is breaking through. There's almost this Eden-like moment where the disciples behold the glory of God. And then in the very next moment, the scene returns down into this scene of, of darkness where the brokenness of the world is confronting the disciples as they live in a world after Genesis 3. And, and I think the disciples are beginning to, to wrestle through this whole scene and this whole section of Luke's gospel with who is Jesus truly? As they've claimed to be his followers, they've signed up to, to go after him. What does that really entail and how does that look in a world that is marked by all of these things of brokenness and the darkness that exists? And so I think this narrative sets those things in contrast for us. And so that's how we're going to kind of look at this. We're going, to, we're going to look at this scene in which the disciples behold glory. And then we're going to shift to these other little narratives that really help us see how Jesus is teaching them and how they are learning to listen to Jesus. Because the reality is, is the disciples are growing in what it means. It, it tells us this, that those who look to Jesus as their Savior must learn to listen to Jesus as their Lord. And so let's just walk through this text and kind of, kind of try to pull these images together for us as we look how Luke has put these things uh, together uh, for our understanding. So it, it tells us here in verse 28 that this, 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 this event happens eight days later. That's eight days after the conversation that has just taken place that we looked at last week that Aaron walked us through, where, where Jesus has asked his disciples, hey, who do, who do people say that I am? And then... He later asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter has made this great confession that you are the Christ. Jesus has then spoken first of, his, of, the, of the, the coming death of the Son of Man. And then Jesus gives this 
sobering reality of what discipleship looks like. That to really follow Him entails this idea of taking up your cross, of denying yourself, of, of losing your life. And at this point in the story, we are then asked as the reader to say, hey, how are the disciples going to step up to this? Are they actually going to press into this vision of discipleship? What is that going to look like? And so, eight days later, Jesus takes three of his followers, his inner circle, as you will, Peter, James, and John, who we often see in kind of these special intimate moments with Jesus, and he takes them up this mountain for the purpose of prayer. We see this often in Jesus' life as he retreats uh, to get away to pray and commune with the Father. But as Jesus is on this mountain with his three followers, deep in prayer, it tells us that the most incredible thing happens. Something we can't even really quite put to words, that words won't really do it justice, what took place. It says that as he was praying, Jesus' appearance is altered. The word used is transformed. His clothing begins to gleam, to glisten, to, to shine. His face is changed. His glory as the Son of God is breaking forth in this moment. It's a spectacular scene. Then also, two men appear with Jesus. They are identified as the Old Testament figures of Moses and Elijah. This scene's getting kind of strange. These Old, Old Testament figures are, are, are now suddenly there talking with Jesus. And then, as, as is very pointed throughout this whole section, it keys in on the disciples in this. And it says that the disciples, they're there as well, but they're sleepy. We don't know why, but, uh, you know, they're at this, in this spectacular moment, they're, they're sleepy, maybe have been asleep and are waking up, and it says that they, they awaken to what's taking place there. There's almost a sense that their physical response is analogous to what is actually happening spiritually for them. And they awaken to this reality of what's taking place and they behold and see the majesty of Jesus shining forth on the mountain. And Peter, if you're not familiar with him, he's often uh, the guy that just kind of speaks up, says what's on his mind, and uh, often puts his foot in his mouth. Um, but he makes this suggestion. Because Moses and Elijah start to leave and, and, and Peter says, hey, Jesus, this is good for us to be here. This is, this is awesome. This is an incredible experience he says, why don't I do something for you? Like, let's make some little tents for you, for, for Moses and Elijah. Uh, not sure what his, what his motives were. Even Luke says Peter didn't really know what he was saying. But, but, but Peter maybe is, is trying to either commemorate this in, in line with maybe the Feast of Tabernacles imagery of the Old Testament, or maybe just to prolong this experience to, to set up some lodging so that they can just, just bask in the glory of what they are experiencing. But notice what, it, what, what Luke says. It says in uh, verse 34, it says, as he was saying these things, as Peter was talking, it's as if God says, hey, Peter, Peter, shut up. Stop talking. I don't need anything from you. I don't need you to do anything. I just need you to listen and, and, and witness what I am doing in this moment. And as he's talking, this cloud envelops them. And it's as if they are entering there into, into the presence of God. They are terrified. And that's what everyone does when they enter into God's presence. And as this cloud comes over them, then also this voice begins to speak to them. And it says these words, which likely, if you're familiar with the story, uh, this is going to sound very familiar. There's this declaration that comes we saw this earlier when Jesus was baptized, right? 
The, the heavens opened and a voice came over Jesus and declared what? It said, you are my son. And notice the difference in, in distinction in the language here. At his baptism, it is almost as if, as if the father is speaking to the son, saying, you are my son. You are my appointed one. I am commissioning you for your mission. And here, it's almost as if he's more directed to the disciples and declares and says, this is my son, my beloved one, my chosen one, the one whom I have appointed. And then the voice gives a very direct and simple command. It says, listen to him. Listen to him. And then as quickly as all of this scene came upon them, it appears as though it returns back to normal. Jesus is left there with his disciples. And the disciples, it says, don't even say anything to anybody because they're just in awe. So what do we make of this scene? I think what's, what's important, the only way to really grasp this is to understand how deeply rooted in Old Testament imagery this scene is. Particularly, if you go back and you read a little chapter in the book of Exodus, Exodus 24. We see almost the exact same thing happen there. Exodus 24 happens after Moses, who has been this appointed one of God. This one appointed to lead the, the nation of Israel out of captivity and bonded in Egypt has, has, has delivered them and, and taken them through the waters of the Red Sea and out into the wilderness. And then they have arrived at another mountain, Mount Sinai. And God invites them up to the mountain. And there in Exodus 24, Moses takes three men, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and they go up the mountain together. And there they behold the glory of God. And there it appears as this sapphire pavement. It's almost like they maybe just see this glimpse of, of God's glory in there. And it says that they commune with God there on the mountain. This cloud comes and overshadows them there. The glory of God is, 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 is on display, even so much that when Moses returns down, he has to put a veil on his face because he is reflecting the divine glory, even on his own face. You see what's happening? And the voice that we see here on the Mount of Transfiguration is so clearly attached and rooted in every new first century Jew would understand, if they, if they knew their Bible at all, would understand what this reference was to. Going back to Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses wrote this, this prophetic word that said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. Then he says, it is to him you shall listen. See? This, furthermore, we're told of the conversation even that happens there on the mountain between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. It says that they spoke of his departure. The, the Greek word there is really of, of his exodus. They're, they're talking about his exodus that he is soon going to accomplish in Jerusalem. You see what's happening? This scene is portraying Jesus and, uh, as though he is reenacting all of these Old Testament images. He is being presented as this new Moses, this new representative who, is, who has been sent to lead a new exodus, a new form of redemption for God's people. We see that he's, he's continuing to be revealed for who he is in God's redemptive plan and purpose. And this scene has just this incredible impact on these followers of Jesus. Even though they may not get it initially, 
Later on, even John and Peter hint at and speak of this event in their later writings. It's a spectacular moment of of, of revealing that takes place where they behold Jesus in His glory. The the glory that that is emanating from Him is not a reflected glory like it was for Moses, but it is the very uh, glory that the second person of the Godhead experiences in, in full union with the Father. The very glory of God breaking forth in this moment. But then, like the painting that we looked at earlier, the next scene gives a very different image. And in these four accounts that follow, we see the disciples, how they have been shown the identity of Jesus. They've been told of His purpose. But we'll see very quickly that they still have some things that they need to learn, things they need to grow in. And we'll see how they they don't quite get it. They're still learning to listen to Jesus. And back down off the mountain, they have to learn not to live by just what they can see, or by the ways of the world that are so hardwired into them, but by listening to Jesus, by grasping the inverted nature of His kingdom. And so we're going to see these lessons that Jesus calls His disciples to learn through these different accounts. He's going to help them learn about the nature of true faith, about having true gospel vision, about having the right values, and ultimately about what it means to be united in His kingdom. So let's work through these different sections. Verses 37 through 43 recount the story of the disciples' failed exorcism. This is kind of a strange story. But the day after the transfiguration event, Jesus comes down off the mountain with his three disciples, and he meets up with the other remaining nine, and there's this crowd that forms around him. And one man in particular yells out at Jesus from the crowd, and it becomes very clear that this this man is in a desperate place. It's revealed that his only son has been tormented by an evil spirit, by a demon. And the influence of this demon was manifested in what appeared to be some kind of epileptic seizure moments. And this, this demon would, would influence maybe a, 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 an already possessed kind of, kind of uh, situation in his life, but he, this demon would work in a way that would cause this child to be thrown into these fits of convulsion, of foaming at the mouth. The other gospels tell us that at times he would throw himself into the fire or into the water and he would harm himself. I can only imagine as a dad, like just the turmoil and the pain and the difficulty that it would be watching your son go through these moments. And this man likely has heard about Jesus, about this this healing that has happened in different areas and regions of Galilee. And so he seeks Jesus out and he ends up finding his disciples and he asks them, pleads with them, can you heal my son? And they try but they fail. For some reason, they cannot cast out this demon. This is what this man tells Jesus. I asked your disciples, but they couldn't do it. They didn't have the ability to do it, which is really interesting, right? Because what did we read back at the beginning of chapter 9? What did we look at? Jesus had just commissioned his, his disciples, right, and sent them out with his power, with his authority to go and cast out demons, right, to uh, to, to heal people, to act on his behalf, to, 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 to spread the message of the kingdom. So you would think, like, in this moment, like, they should be ready to do this, right? We got this. 
but they fail to actually heal this boy. And then notice Jesus' response here. He uses this Old Testament language that's been applied to the nation of Israel in the past. And he says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. And you might read that and be like, Jesus, isn't that kind of harsh? Like, after all, it's a demon, right? It's like kind of hard, like thing that we're up against. But this is his declaration to them. Oh, twisted and faithless generation. He says, how long am I to be with you? How long can I bear with you? And so Jesus' question is a form of a rebuke to his followers. He says, I've been teaching you. I've been revealed to you as the Son of God. And you still don't quite get it. So why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon? Well, I think Matthew and Mark actually help us in this, and they give us a little more clarity. Where Jesus responds to them in, in, in Matthew and says, it was because of your little faith. In Mark, it says that prayer was needed. Prayer is a, an expression, manifestation of faith. So this tells us that, that the disciples in some way approached this situation not rooted in the power and the authority of Jesus, but rather from their own self-reliance. I can imagine that the disciples have, have gone out on this other mission previously. They've had success. They've, they've seen the powerful work of Jesus through them. And here they are. Jesus has gone up on the mountain to pray with the other disciples, and, and this man comes to them, and they're like, we got this. Oh, oh Jesus is out, isn't here right now, but we can do this. We got this. In some sense, I think we have to understand them, them shifting their, their understanding and their faith away from dependence on Jesus in this and dependence on themselves, their own ability. And in that moment, they fail. But Jesus steps in. He says, hey, bring the boy to me. The, 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 the boy comes, the demon reacts and convulses the child right there. Jesus rebukes the demon, casts him out, heals the child, returns it to his father. And notice the last line, which I think is also important here. It says, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. The very glory that was displayed on the mountain is now manifested and declared through the healing of this child. But this event points people to the majesty and the glory of God, which I think the disciples had missed. What they had started to believe was that if they could cast out demons, they were starting to gain uh, notoriety, recognition, glory for themselves, rather than recognizing that the, everything they did was supposed to point to the glory of Jesus and the glory of God. And it tells us that if we distance ourselves from our identity in Jesus, then we will fail to operate in the power and the authority of Jesus. If we distance ourselves from the, our identity in Jesus, we will fail to operate in the power and the authority of Jesus. And we do this all the time. When we have success in our business, in our academic careers, when our, with our families, in our athletic endeavors, we can start to think that we are something that we have attained, that we have accomplished all of this on our own rather than in humble dependence and recognition of God and His work and His gifts to us. And so Jesus in this moment is, is wanting His disciples to learn what it means to actually live in constant dependence and faith in Him for everything that they do on His behalf. The narrative moves in verses 43 to 45. 
And it's still the same scene, but it focuses in on what Jesus tells his disciples directly. While the crowd is marveling at what's just taken place, while there's probably chatter about what's going on, Jesus looks at his disciples with these very clear words, and he says this. He says, let these words sink into your ears. He says, guys, I want you to listen to this. I have something I need you to hear. Listen up. I think all of us parents have done that with our kids, right? Like, like stop, listen, pay attention, don't talk. I need you to hear this. And he tells them this, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is his second prediction of his death. And the disciples, as much as he calls them to listen to this, they don't understand him. <laughs> and we could be tempted to think, What's, what is wrong with these guys? Why don't they get it? I think the sense is like, they, they likely perceived and, and could, could understand the words that Jesus was saying. But I think the idea is that they couldn't quite perceive it. They didn't make sense to them. And Luke gives us an interesting commentary where he says, the truth was concealed from them so that they could not perceive it. And then notice Luke's final commentary where he says, they were afraid to ask him about what he had told them. Have you ever been in like a, a group of people that have a conversation and maybe a joke is made about something. Everybody gets it, but you don't really, but you don't want to be like, uh, I, I didn't, what, what are you talking about? And you just kind of go along with it, maybe chuckle and laugh and pretend like you understand it. Or maybe you're in school and the teacher gives instructions and asks everybody if everybody understood and you don't want to be the kid that raised their hand like, nope, I didn't get it. This is like the disciples here. You, you can picture that, right? Like they're turning to each other afterwards like, okay, Jesus, great. Son of man is going to be delivered. That's great. Hey, hey, Peter, did you understand what he, what he was talking about? No, I had no idea. Like, you, you, you're going to ask him about it? I'm not going to ask him. I'm not going to ask him. Like, none of them want to be the one that's, that's revealed to, to be ignorant, to not get it. And they sit in their unwillingness to really grasp the significance of what Jesus is saying. And they don't quite get it. You, you see, Peter's confession was correct. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. But every time then he tells them, hey, I'm actually going to suffer. I'm going to die. They're like, what do you mean? How is that possible? They're confused because they don't yet have a category for a crucified Messiah. They haven't fully arrived to see the nature of Jesus coming and his kingdom. They still can't reconcile this question. How could Jesus be God's representative, his agent to bring deliverance and at the same time be one that is going to die? That doesn't sound like the Messiah they're looking for. They lacked perception. They lacked a clear vision of what God was doing. And how often do we struggle to perceive God's vision even in our own lives? We may, may recognize Jesus and, and claim Him as, as Lord of our salvation and, and the one who, who offers us eternal life, but when it comes to the way of living in the world, my life, the kingdom that I want to build for myself, I got that. I can do that on my own. I can take care of that. This whole notion of, of suffering and difficulty, I want nothing to do with that. That doesn't make sense. I want this, this victorious, successful, prosperous life and I'm going to get that by any means that I can. 
Sometimes Jesus says, actually, you need to understand, my followers, that the path to glory, the road to the throne, actually has to go through the cross. And until you grasp that and see that, you won't truly understand me. So Jesus gives them this lesson, calling them to have a true kingdom vision. In verses 46 to 48, we're told of this argument that breaks out between them, where Jesus wants to teach them another lesson. And here they begin to argue over who's the greatest. We don't really know exactly what that looked like, but, you know, maybe Peter, James, and John just had a little more swagger after what they witnessed and got to experience on the mountain. Maybe they began to debate with each other over uh, who was most successful on their recent mission. How many, how many people did you heal, Matthew? You know, how, how, how many demons did you cast out, Bartholomew? What, 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 you know, we don't know exactly what the conversation was, but in some sense, they were jockeying for position, comparing themselves with one another. Who was the greatest? Who was exercising the most power? And Jesus, being who he is, he understands what's going on. He, he perceives their hearts. I love Mark's account of this, uh, where, he, where he tells us that uh, after they arrived where they were going, he, uh, he just kind of casually asks his disciples, hey, hey, fellas, what were you talking about back there on the road? And they, they didn't say anything. Like, oh, nothing, Jesus, Not, nothing at all, just shooting the breeze. But Jesus understands their heart. And so he gives them an object lesson. It says that he, he takes a child and sets this child before their midst. We have to understand that in the ancient world, children were viewed very differently than we do. Like, we love kids. We think they're so cute. You know, they can interrupt our meetings or everything, and we laugh, and we chuckle, and it's great. I think it's a good thing. But in the ancient world, they were really at the bottom of the social hierarchy. <laughs> children very much were like, they should be seen and not heard, maybe not even seen. Like, they were relegated to places of just total unimportance. Um, and there's a lot of factors for that. Sometimes, whether, you know, how long they would live, and all, there's a lot of layers to, to, to those things. But especially for a, for a rabbi or a teacher, the, the children would be seen as a nuisance, an inconvenience. We see this at another scene where, where Jesus is, is teaching and kids try to come up to him. And what do his disciples do? They're like, hey, get away, get away. Don't, don't come up here. Don't bother him. He doesn't have time for you. He's, he's, he's doing important things. So in this scene, this isn't Jesus taking a cute little kid and having a nice sentimental moment. He's actually taking and inviting the most undervalued and insignificant of their community and telling them that if you receive a child like this in my name, then you are receiving me. He says, if you place value on this one when no one else does, then you are actually acting in line with who I am. Because Jesus reveals over and over again that he places value on the marginalized, the downtrodden, the neglected, the hurting, not just on the influential, the talented, or just the powerful. And he says to them, if you want to understand who is great, you need to totally transform your idea of greatness. And look at yourselves. However you've, you've discerned who is great among you, or, or who is least, if, if you've been able to, to figure out the pecking order amongst you 12, look at the bottom, and that is where you're going to find greatness. 
And it's not because they have some inherent quality in themselves, but because Jesus has, has, has declared and designated them as great. And he values them, the least of these. And he's helping them as his followers that they have to, to change and reorient their vision of what it means to be great if they are actually to follow him into his kingdom. We have one final little story here. Just a couple lines given to it. And we see that in, in this, that the disciples have encountered an unidentified exorcist. We don't know anything about this, this person, but apparently this, this person who was out there in the name of Jesus, was confronting the demonic, was, was trying to cast out demons. And uh, John tells Jesus, I think maybe looking for affirmation from Jesus, and he says, Jesus, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. And his reason for doing so was this. He says, because he didn't follow with us. This man wasn't part of their group. He wasn't part of their tribe. So they were, were trying to shut him down. And notice Jesus' answer. He simply says, hey guys, you don't need to do that. I'm not going to commend you for that. And he tells them that this, the one who is not against you is for you. And here the disciples are wrestling with the nature of their calling. And I think Jesus perceives that they're starting to think that they alone have the inside track with Jesus, that they have found the path to greatness by aligning themselves with Him. They have exclusive rights to who Jesus is, to His power, and they want to protect that for themselves. And if I'm honest, like, I probably would have responded the same way. Like, there's this weirdo out there doing strange things. He's claiming the name of Jesus. Uh, we don't want to be associated with that. That's strange. We should probably try to put a stop to that so that we don't get a bad reputation because of this guy. But Jesus is wanting to teach them about the nature of the unity of his kingdom. A warning against being too exclusive in this sense. Well, there's a couple things we need to say about this. What's interesting is that we aren't given any clear insight into whether this guy was theologically sound, whether he was uh, you know, truly a faithful follower of Jesus. You see, Jesus' point was not specifically to give us a criterion by which to test religious teachers. His purpose was more pointed at his disciples and their attitude about the assumptions about the nature of allegiance to him. And Jesus is wanting to confront their exclusive claim to himself. I think it's important to also say that this, this account shouldn't be construed to, to mean that we just wholesale affirm and accept anything and everything out there that kind of affixes itself to the name of Jesus. Like we, we need to have clear and firm convictions on what the scriptures teach. We need to know the word. We should all be growing in our understanding of truth and our convictions on those things. And there are those who claim the name of Jesus who have drifted so far from biblical truth, who have distorted the gospel to such a way that there does at times need to be correction, there does at times need to be warning given. But how we speak into those things and our attitude towards others matters. And I think Jesus is cautioning his disciples that we must be careful not just to cast stones at those who don't quite line up with us on every issue of doctrine and don't quite agree with us on everything. There are faithful followers of Jesus with whom we may disagree, even on some significant issues. And like this other foreign exorcist, 
the authenticity of his, his ministry and what he's doing will be revealed in the end. But it's not up to Jesus' followers to, to, to be the final judge and arbiter of those things. I think it's a reminder that one day we might actually find out that we might have missed a few things as well. So this account calls Jesus' disciples to recognize and embrace the expanding nature of his kingdom. That he's not just going to use just those 12, but he's actually going to use a multitude of people, a multitude of disciples to go forth and proclaim his kingdom throughout the world. In just a short chapter, he's going to send out 72, a whole other group of people um, that we don't quite know yet, that is, is, is telling us that, that Jesus is about this, this expansive nature of his kingdom, and his disciples have to embrace that and, and, and see that vision. One commentator said it like this, though, that just in, in this whole section, Jesus had implored the disciples to honor those of no status, to give honor to those who didn't have any status, but yet in this moment, they had refused partnership with one who did not share the status that they assigned to themselves. He, has, he is trying to teach them and help them to learn to listen to him about what it means to invite and include others into his kingdom. There's a lot here. How do we, how do we tie this all up? How do we bring this, 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 this all together? I think the reality is that probably likely in a room like this, with, with all of us, that, 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 that likely, I pray, that, that you have had a true encounter with God. That you have been drawn to behold Christ for who He truly is. That He has met you at some point and moment in your life. Opened your eyes to see and behold the glory of Christ. Just like it was displayed on that mountaintop. Where you, you recognize Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord sent to redeem you from your sin. You've been drawn to cast your faith on Him. And you share that confession alongside of Peter that He is the Christ of God. If that's not you this morning, as we do every week, there's an invitation here. There's an invitation to, 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 to turn away from yourself and your own, your own ways of, of trying to uh, gain your own status and righteousness. There's an invitation to cast it all on Jesus and receive the gift of His salvation. That is for you. But for many of us who have, who have taken that step, who have had that encounter with God, how often, even from what we confess, do we turn into a world of brokenness, of struggle, and we simply operate just by what we see rather than by what God has said, what Jesus has said. Will we, as his followers, actually learn to listen to him? Yes, we need to look to him as our Savior, but will we listen to him as our Lord, as our guide, as he invites us to be his followers, to embrace the values and, and, and vision of his kingdom? Will we listen in regards to exercising true faith? Not dependent on ourselves, on, on our abilities, on our talents, but in humble, faithful dependence on Jesus. Will we listen and receive the vision of God's kingdom? That the path to glory isn't always the way that we want to take. That oftentimes it may be marked by suffering, by difficulty, by struggle. 
Are we willing to trust Him through those seasons that He's bringing us through? And will we see that following Jesus is following Him in the path that He took? That His path was one of humility, of being crushed, of being defeated, and His defeat was ultimately transformed into the greatest victory. Will we listen to what it means to be great? That we don't have to claim a status for ourselves, but actually greatness is found in identifying the lowly that God loves and sets His affection on. Will we listen to Jesus and His call to humble, humble unity with others? To not be so proud that we have the corner on everything and that we just get to criticize and put down and tear down everybody else. But will we recognize that everything that we have been given and called is a gift from Him? And He's using others that may be even a little different than us to actually accomplish His purposes too. Will we learn to listen to Jesus despite what we see? And in so doing, will we grow to be faithful followers and disciples of Him? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for these stories. We thank You for this beautiful juxtaposition of the mountaintop where Your glory was revealed, that glory that we long to experience, that we long to see. And yet, when we look around us, when we walk out of these doors and into our week this week, we're going to be confronted with a broken world that operates from a different set of values, a different set of, of convictions, a different set of strategies. And I just pray that you would help us to learn to listen to Jesus, to grow, to embrace the expanding nature of your kingdom, to truly understand what it means to be great. The greatness is not found in building up a name for ourselves, but it's by magnifying yours. So I pray that you would work in our midst, do that in us, shape us, grow us, just as you took your disciples and it took them so long to learn and to, to grow and to understand these things, so too we are slow to hear sometimes, and I pray that you would patiently walk with us, grow us, and help us to have eyes to see these things, and that we would be a different people in this world, that we would be a community that truly manifests the upside-down nature of your kingdom. We love you, Father, we thank you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.